0: Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I, uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, alright? I have no idea what it's about, and the
1: writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized and i only read 30 pages of it anyway well that was passionate albeit entirely misinformed who dares follow miss kelly's lucid analysis
0: (laughs) it's required reading
1: with tom and stella
0: episode number 47 the reader by bernard schlink
1: have you spent a lot of time thinking about the past you mean with you no No, I didn't mean with me. Before the trial, I never thought about the past. I never had to. Now? What do you feel now? It doesn't matter what I feel doesn't matter what I think the dead are still dead
0: I wasn't sure what you had learned
1: what I have learned kid I've learned to read
0: Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is, well, guess what? It's all about books and literature, sometimes plays, sometimes graphic novels. Each month, we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read and we determine whether it is worthy of its reputation and whether it is, in fact, required reading. And now, we're about to dive into a new genre that we've never done. <laughs> and I am not going to pronounce it, so I've looked it up on the YouTube of how you pronounce this German word. Are you ready for this?
1: Sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'll, yeah, I'll have to boost that up. But it is German for overcoming the past. So that's what this particular book is all about. And I'm Stella. I'm leading us through the reader And with me is... I, don't, I, I guess my, It's not going to work. I know, it really isn't. <laughs> There's no one with me. But we did, you know, this guy at least, he he's totally, I think he's on my brainwaves sometimes because I sent an emoji and I told him, wait, we f- totally forgot that one segment where we described the book with the emojis. And then he texted me back a book and a bathtub. And I was like, yeah, same. So this guy who is sometimes, but very frequently on my wa- brainwaves, the same ones, it's Tom Paneris. Hey. <laughs>
1: um. So is this your response to Prodigal Summer?
0: Ah! <laughs> it is a bit, isn't it? It's funny because, yeah, I made fun of you that I was romance, and then... Robert came in and said that it was like erotic and she was just completely thirsty and boy did I choose kind of an yeah. erotic one um, not as you know I've read my fair share of romance novels so it's not like super duper but yeah there's sex all over the place in this particular novel so yeah I'll say yes it is my response to that
1: yes yeah, so join us next month as we read the letter <laughs> column from the July 1986 <laughs> issue of Penthouse Magazine Oh boy,
0: yeah.
1: Penthouse Forum is it required reading?
0: Hmm. Find out. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the <laughs> the uh, it's it's actually not a response to that though. It is funny thematically how the two connect, but mm-hmm. I wanted to do one that really tries your empathy and challenges you and there's certainly a quote that I think really summarizes a lot of the the stuff that's happening and I think in regards to what's going on with our nation right now I thought it'd be kind of a good thought experiment almost of you know looking at this and their circumstances here and maybe can we look at past sins and think through like present difficulties using what we've learned in the past and so i think that's that's true so that's that was more the reason why i was doing it just because everything's heating up and has been heating up for a while but there is a nice thematic connection with prodigal summer Mm -hmm. so we are currently in a nice drop in the temperature i guess this episode comes out in october Yeah. And uh, I mean, how do you – I was jealous actually a bit because you posted on the Instagram that you went to Trader Joe's and you found the pumpkin Trojos or whatever they're called. Yeah, the
1: pumpkin Jojos. Yeah, And And the maple leaf cookies.
0: uh, Oh, I do love those. Those
1: are good. When
0: I went shopping, I swear I went a couple days before you and there were no pumpkin Jojos and then you had that. It, It almost incensed me.
1: I'm sorry, I didn't uh I I, I just I happened I this is like nobody cares about this, but I happen I to did. be at my, my school where I teach, which is right around the corner uh-huh. from Trader Joe's. So I thought, well, since I'm going into work, <laughs> I might as well, you know, hit up Trader Joe's and then and then head head home. Yeah. And uh, so that was a that was on a Friday. So for all I know, they stocked between them I or guess, what, yeah. but
0: Oh, now, so that some was of, Thursday, so it was literally the day yeah. before is when I went shopping yeah.
1: there. Now, the JoJo cookies that I particularly like – I mean, the Halloween ones, I think, are, are some of my favorite. And granted, they're not much different than regular chocolate JoJo's, but the Halloween ones, the, the cookie part for that is, like, even better than an Oreo. It's so good. Mm. And then when, when Christmas rolls around – they oh, have the some really good cookies, the peppermint ones, and then they have like the um the, the, some of the shortbread and ginger the, their gingerbread man cookies are really really good. Yeah. I spent a lot of money at Trader Joe's. <laughs> so yeah. Well, more than I usually do. Sure. I was like, "Oh, and I'm going to get the the frozen stir-fried you know rice and, you know,
0: yeah. ooh,
1: English muffins." <laughs> like, you know, just try to grab what I-
0: yeah, I'm I'm pretty nuts for pumpkins, so this is always a bad time of year with, like, self-control because I have none, mm-hmm. basically, when it involves pumpkin items. So maybe it's good that I didn't find those JoJo's there.
1: I'm selective with pumpkin items because um, some of them are a little too artificially sweet-tasting for my taste. Some of the pumpkin spice-related stuff tends to bend toward more toward like tasting like licorice to me and Uh, i don't really like the taste of liquor like mm -hmm. black licorice very much so that's why i don't like a pumpkin spice latte it's um it's just i it's there's like a a sweetness and a licorishiness that i don't like but my my favorite holiday themed drink at starbucks is the peppermint mocha Mm. and even then i i have to i think i've talked about this somewhere probably in the previous episode or, or maybe last month but I, I try to get like you know like one pump or something of the peppermint instead of like oh, the full. Yeah. It gets it gets too sweet toward the end. So
0: yeah, I feel um, like we did talk about it. How I did think that come up?
1: This is it's is this it's gonna it's, call, is this, it's, a it's this quarantine. <laughs> we're we're having the same conversation. Uh, you know, it's yeah. like it's either Groundhog Day or a Sartre play. I I can't oh, have right. decide what what situation we're in yet. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess it's like Shagalicious says to find your joy, you know. So we're just finding that in yeah. uh, flavors and things like that. Well,
1: I well I like the fall and winter a lot. Yeah. And uh, like I like you know going apple picking and hiking and just getting outdoors. And I know it kills my allergies half the time, but I just I like being outdoors when it's a little cooler and. I really love the holidays, so I'm trying to find that joy in, <gasps> in the end of the year uh-huh. when it's just very stressful right now and, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty going on.
0: For sure, yeah. yep. Well, yeah, apple picking and uh, going to get some apple donuts or yes. even carving some pumpkins. These are all average and normal activities, but they're not activities that Hannah and Michael would participate in.
1: Yeah. Which is what
0: we're going to talk about today. And it's sure. funny because I read two papers, which I'll actually bring this guy up, but my nemesis Sam Heath presented two papers, one at Georgetown and one at, I can't remember the other, oh, Baylor, I think. And huh. for both of them, he had this little tagline, basically like summarizing the tale, and he's like, sex, it's about sex, bathing, sex. Reading sex, and I wrote him back and I said, "Sir, that is incorrect. That is the improper order because we all know that she liked to bathe first." Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that that's there's so much of that that goes on here. So we're certainly going to be talking about it. But yes, so let's talk a bit about. Oh, I guess it's our history first. Our history. I always. This is funny. It's like it's the first time we're podcasting. Every time I lead, whatever. <laughs> So what is your history with this particular novel?
1: Uh, This is my history with it. I uh, had heard of the movie adaptation Mm -hmm. uh, years ago, never saw the movie adaptation. I'm pretty sure that Kate Winslet won an Oscar for this movie, or at least she was nominated. But uh, this was the first time I'd ever read the book. So so it's not very exciting. (laughs) history but that's what it is
0: well i guess that's true of most of our histories uh while i talk i will also search on imdb to see about the awards for this i this is the first time that i've read it but i feel like my history is more complicated than that so i definitely have seen the film so that was my first intro to it i knew of it more as a film than as a book and the film came out in 2008 pretty sure i saw it with my mom and But my nemesis, Sam Heath, that I just mentioned, he talks about this book all the time. I think it's one of his go-tos to have discussions about. Mm. And even there was one devotion that we had. We had, Remember, I went to a Christian school, so we had devotions every morning that he actually talks about this one passage that I'm going to highlight when we start our actual – yeah, she did win the Oscar – Yes, uh, it was, and it was it's... nominated for best motion picture as well, but mm-hmm. did not get it. Yeah.
1: So. she won best actress. It was her first nomination, her first win in in the acting category, and overall, it is her one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh nomination or eighth nomination or something. So yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. So and so, I feel like it's it's always been on my periphery and then I thought I think I'm finally going to read it uh, which of course brought Sam Heath a lot of joy that I was finally going to read it and then we were going to talk about it so that yeah but it's my first time sitting down and reading it and I guess before we started recording I was telling Tom how I, I get to read a lot at my new job and it was yeah it was interesting to read and one sometimes people walk by me all the time because I'm at the front of the building and one person came up to me and asked what the book was and so I had to explain what it was and then I feel like that person will never again ask me what book I'm reading because I said you know how there's like an SS officer in there and they probably think I'm like I don't know but it's just a book. (laughs) I don't know, but anyways. Uh yeah, it's just it it was thought-provoking because there's so many questions, like rhetorical questions almost throughout that I kind of had to stop and and think about it. So it was just really interesting. But so, we're we're on the same page basically that we've never read it before. Okay, so now we will talk about Bernard Schlink.
1: By the way, Kate Winslet has 3 quarters of a t- of an EGOT. She's missing the Tony.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: She has a Grammy. I did not know she had a Grammy. Anyway,
0: mm-hmm. as you were. <laughs> okay, so Er Bernard Schlink is a German lawyer, academic, and novelist. And he is best known for his novel, The Reader, which was first published in 95 and became an international bestseller. And I should say that this uh, history of him came from peoplepill.com, which I thought was a rather interesting website that I found. He was uh-oh. Uh-oh. I did this to myself. He was born in, oh no, uh, Grodenburg near Bielfeld uh, to a German father and a Swiss mother, the youngest of four children. His mother, Imgard, had been a theology student of his father, whom she married in 1938. Ooh, interesting. Edmund Schlink's first wife had died in 1936. Bernard's father had been a seminary professor and pastor in the anti-Nazi confessing church. In 1946, he became a professor of dogmatic and ecumenical theology at Heidelberg University, where he would serve until his retirement in 1971. Over the course of four decades, Edmund Schlenk became one of the most famous and influential Lutheran theologians in the world and a key participant in the modern ecumenical movement. Bernard Schlink was brought up in Heidelberg from the age of two. He studied law at West Berlin's free university, graduating in 1968. Schlink became a judge at the Constitutional Court of the Federal State of North Rhine, Westphalia in 1988, and in 92, a professor for public law and the philosophy of law at Humboldt University, Berlin, and he retired in 2006. He studied law at, this is his career here, okay, uh, at the University of Heidelberg and at the Free University of Berlin. He worked as a scientific assistant at the University of Darmstadt Bielf. This is funny because of, this is completely different biography than anyone else I think that we've covered so far, which is interesting. Uh, he had been a law professor at the University of Bonn and Johann Wolfgang Goethe, University of Frankfurt, um, Main. Before he started in 92 at Humboldt University of Berlin, his career as a writer, here we go, began with several detective novels with the main character named Selb, a play on the German word for self, the first self's punishment co-written with Walter Pop, being available in the UK. One of these, De Gordische Schleife won the Glaucer Prize in 1989. In 95, here we go, he published The Reader, and we know what it's about, or we will soon. It became a bestseller both in Germany and the United States and was translated into 39 languages. It was the first German book to reach the number one position in the New York Times bestseller list. In 97, it won the Hans Follada Prize, a German literary award, and the Pre-Lar Battalion for works translated into french in 99 it was awarded the welt Literpre of the newspaper die welt in 2000 you know apologies if there are any german listeners here that i've completely butchered your language and i do apologize in 2000 schlink published a collection of short fiction called flights of love a january 2008 literary tour including an appearance in san francisco for city arson lectures was canceled due to schlink's recovery from minor surgery and then we have of course our 2008 adaptation directed by stephen daldry and in 2010 his nonfiction political history guilt about the past was published by Beautiful Books. And as of 2008, Schlink divides his time between New York and Berlin, and he is a member of the PEN Center Germany. So, not too much about his personal life there. I guess I could have done more research on that. I'm not sure if he's a family man. But it's just interesting. I feel like of all of our people, and I'm just kind of thinking through them right now as I talk, I feel like this is the most distinct that we've had that basically it's like almost a second career for him or he came into it late because his primary career was in the law and now he's writing do we have yeah. anyone else that was kind of a second career for novels or writing i should say
1: no i i can't think of i know there were a couple of people who like I Orbo orwell's a journalist but yeah. you know but is is you know the no, I think, I think most of our writers have been yeah. writers, uh-huh. uh, except for maybe, maybe John Lewis, but that was a, that was an autobiography. Oh, so that, sure. that, I don't think that really counts yeah. in the, in the realm that you're talking about. My, if John Lewis had written a novel that we were looking at, I think that would have, um, yeah. that would have matched uh, lined up. But the fact that he was writing his own memoir is not, uh, or, you know, along with the, the other art writers and artists, uh, you know I don't think that that tracks but
0: yeah and we haven't done yeah. any Hemingway so
1: no and <laughs> and there's like there are other people who are now like famous best-selling authors and that's kind of what they do that they took from like their mm. prior career yeah. uh, like uh John Grisham is probably one of the best examples of because he was a lawyer at one point and started writing you know the firm and of time to kill etc etc etc
0: yeah, or Tom King going from the CIA to Nightwing. Mm. Or, well, the CIA to comics, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Be yeah. More, or vague. Okay, well, I think that we shall now do the plot synopsis, which shall indeed involve bathing and sex and reading and sex. And I got this plot synopsis from litter, Lit Charts, because I'm lazy and I'm first to admit it. The narrator, as just with synopses, everything else I'm not lazy about. The narrator, Michael Berg, tells the story of his teenage affair with a former Nazi prison guard and its aftermath. In part one, a 15-year-old Michael is on his way home when he becomes violently ill by the side of a building. One of the building's tenants, 60... 60- Whoa. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> okay. That was a terrible slip. <laughs> Sixty-year-old? Could you imagine? Oh, makes it even worse. Okay, who? Who, boy? Okay. <laughs> yeah,
1: this isn't Harold and Maude.
0: <laughs> I know. Oh heavens! What a good reference, sir. Okay. Oh, one of the building's tenants, thirty-six-year-old Hanna Schmitz, rescues him, cleaning him up and bringing him back home where his doctor diagnoses him with hepatitis months later after urging from his mother michael returns to the woman's apartment in order to thank her but as the woman is preparing to walk about he finds himself unable to stop watching her get dressed embarrassed to be caught he flees and later is plagued with guilt for fantasizing about her however a few days later he visits Hanna's apartment again intending to apologize to his delight mm-mm, Hannah is not annoyed with him and merely asks him to fetch some coal from the cellar he does but returns covered in coal dust after accidentally dislodging a pile of coal <sighs> Hana runs a bath for him and seduces him the two then begin a continuing affair including this ritual of showering and sex later when Hana becomes interested in Michael's study she makes his reading aloud to her a condition for sex and the routine soon incorporates reading before their shower during his easter vacation michael plans a bicycle trip for the two of them Hanna leads all the logistics to michael who orders food from menus registers them as mother and son at the inns and plans a route on his maps On their vacation, they begin their days making love and spending the rest of the day cycling. One morning, Michael decides to get Hannah breakfast before she wakes up and leaves a note. However, when he returns, she is furious. To Michael's great shock, she hits him with a belt and then bursts into tears because he left with no explanation. Michael tells her that he left a note, but Hannah claims that there was no note when michael starts a new school year in the 11th grade he makes new friends including sophie on whom he has a crush he begins to go to the swimming pool with his classmates and becomes torn between spending time with his friends and spending time with hana whenever he has fights with hana he becomes increasingly resentful of how she bullies him into surrendering but he also always begs for forgiveness as he is afraid of losing her as he grows closer to his friends but neglects to tell them about hana he begins to feel as if he is betraying her be that I said betraying. Betraying her by denying her importance in his life. One day, while Michael is at the swimming pool, he sees Hanna from a distance. Unsure of what to do, he hesitates before getting up, but in that moment, she is gone. The next day, Hana is nowhere to be found. And after asking around at her building, her employer, and the citizens' registration office, he discovers that she has denied a promotion and moved away, plagued by Guilt, Michael believes that his betrayal and his hesitation caused her to leave. Part two begins with Michael's struggle to overcome the pain of losing hana who haunts his dreams and thoughts. As time passes, along with his pain and guilt, he appears to move on, adopting a mask of, quote, arrogant superiority, end quote. Though his friendships and relationships come easily to him, he is at times cold and at others over-emotional. Six years later, Michael is a young law student taking a class that centers on a trial concerning the concentration camps. Michael, along with his classmates, become zealous crusaders intent on uncovering the atrocities of the Third Reich. The students condemn not only direct perpetrators of the crimes, but also the bystanders and accommodators who had (laughs) accepted the perpetrators' activities during the Nazi regime and accepted them Back into society after the war. In short, the previous generation. So this is what we're talking about, gaining over the past, and that word I couldn't pronounce. As part of the class, the students attend the trial on a weekly basis. At the court, when the defendant's names are called, Michael discovers that Hanna is one of the former Nazi guards on trial. However, despite the pain that Hanna's departure once gave him, he felt nothing at learning the news. During her preliminary hearing, Hanna reveals that she rejected a promotion at her factory job shortly before signing up as a prison guard, making it appear to the jury that she had voluntarily, if not enthusiastically, joined the SS. Hanna's lawyer does not do much to help her. S- salvage this first bad impression and hana is kept under detention for having ignored summonses unlike his classmates who attend only weekly michael attends a trial every day always watching hana as michael becomes exposed to more horrors for a prolonged period of time he begins to feel numb and is emotionally distant not unlike the survivors and even perpetrators of the holocaust who are exposed to evil on a regular basis The main charges against Hannah and the other four women are that they were involved in selecting 60 people to send to their deaths every month and that they had locked hundreds of women and girls in a burning church. And may I just say that they locked them in the church first and then a bomb was dropped and then the church burned so they didn't just throw them in there while the church was on fire but i mean the, the end result is the same the trial goes poorly for hana whose initially bad impression becomes worse as she continually contradicts the indictment despite her opportunity to review it before the trial began and who cannot seem to understand the gravity of her actions at the concentration camp when the judge asks hana if she knew she was participating in murder she seems entirely concerned with the task of clearing out barrack space and indifferent to the fact that she sent people to their deaths though hannah denies certain charges she admits others that she finds true regardless of their impact on her conviction. For example, she admits to being aware that her prisoners would die. The other defendants' lawyers use her admissions to their advantage, claiming that Hanna was the leader of the other guards, the most culpable and most cruel, and the only one aware that the prisoners would die. They point to Hanna's special prisoners, young girls to whom Hanna would give better food and barrack space and with whom she would spend evenings before sending them off to Auschwitz. At this point, a Jewish woman who had survived the church fire with her mother suddenly remembers a secret that one of Hannah's favorites had told her. Hannah had not molested the girls as they all thought, but rather had made them read to her. Though the woman's testimony provides Hanna a good opportunity to gain the sympathies of the court, neither she nor her lawyer takes advantage of it. When the judge asked the defendants why they didn't unlock the church doors, most of the defendants claimed that they were otherwise preoccupied, despite a report that they had actually been guarding the church to prevent the prisoners from escaping. The women claim that the report is false, and one defendant accuses Hanna of writing the report as a cover-up. However, Hanna tells the judge that they had all decided together what to say on the report. When a prosecutor suggests calling in an expert to compare the defendant's handwriting to that of the report, Hanna confesses to writing the report. Michael realizes at this moment that Hanna cannot read or write and he debates whether or not he should tell the judge as testimony of Hanna's illiteracy would most likely result in a shorter prison sentence for her. However, Hanna clearly does not want to be exposed as illiterate and Michael seeks his father's advice as a philosopher. His father tells him that though he may believe he knows what is good for his friend, he cannot go beyond her back as it would violate her human dignity. Rather, he must try to convince her to do what is best for her. However, Michael Michael is unsatisfied with this answer as he does not feel ready to meet Hana face-to-face. Michael decides to visit the judge but cannot bring himself to visit Hana. He chats amicably with the judge but does not mention Hana or her illiteracy and at the end of the trial Hana is sentenced to life in prison. In part three, after the trial is over, Michael spends much of his time obsessing over his studies and avoiding others so that the numbness that had come over him during the trial remains. Despite his aloofness, Michael is invited to a ski trip with his classmates, and he accepts. Both emotionally numb and indifferent to the cold, Michael comes down with a fever, but once he recovers, he feels the pain and horror he had during the trial. By the time Michael finishes his studies, the student movement is already underway, and the narrator contemplates his generation's struggle to deal with collective guilt for the Nazi past like most of his generation Michael had assigned blame to his parents though Michael eventually realizes that his parents are blameless Hannah is not and he feels guilty for having chosen and loved her as a law clerk Michael marries his girlfriend Gertrude when she gets pregnant over the course of their marriage Michael never tells her about Hannah but often compares Gertrude to Hannah in his mind the marriage lasts only five years and Michael's guilt over making his daughter Julia suffer through their divorce pushes him to become more open about Hannah in his relationships however he doesn't appears satisfied with the women's reactions to his past with hana and he eventually stops talking about her after the divorce michael is restless feels haunted by the thoughts of hana to pass the time he records himself reading books aloud to her and censor the cassette tapes though the tapes become michael's way of communicating with hana he never includes personal messages on the recordings four years later michael receives a handwritten thank you note from hana While Michael is delighted that Hannah has finally learned to read and write, he feels sorry for how long it took her and for how it delayed her life. Hannah begins to send Michael notes regularly, commenting on her life or the books, but Michael never writes back. However, he continues sending her tapes for the next 10 years until she is granted clemency by her parole board. When the warden at Hanna's prison writes Michael a letter to ask for his assistance during Hanna's upcoming release, Michael is hesitant as he still cannot face Hanna. Though he agrees to set up an apartment and job for her, he does not visit her in prison or write her letters. After a year, the warden calls to let him know that Hannah, Hanna, will be released in a week. When Michael finally visits the prison, he is shocked to find Hanna an old woman, and can, and he cannot find in her the woman. He once loved. Their reunion is awkward and bittersweet. Though Hana is happy to see him, both realize that they can no longer continue the relationship they had built through the cassette tapes. Michael still feels uneasy about the trial and asks her whether she had thought about her time in the SS when they were together. Hanna evades the question, claiming that only the dead can, quote, call her to account, end quote, but tells Michael that the dead visit her every night in prison. Michael, however, believes this is too easy of an excuse and secretly feels that he deserves to call... Hana to account to the next week, the day before Michael's to pick up Hannah, he decides to call her at the prison, asking her to think about what she wants to do the next day. When Hanna teases him, he notices that her voice still sounds young. The next day, Hannah kills herself. Dun, dun, dun. And it happens just as shocking as my synopsis, because you turn the page and she's dead. The warden shows Michael Hanna's cell and reveals that Hanna had been reading up on survivor literature and books about the concentration camps. When Michael sees that Hanna had kept a newspaper photo of his high school red, He begins to cry, realizing how much Hanna must have cared for him. The warden informs him that Hanna had left a will. She wanted Michael to give the money in her bank account and some money in her tea tin to the daughter who had survived the church fire. Months later, Michael visits the Jewish woman in New York to explain the situation. The woman refuses to take direct responsibility for Hanna's money, nor to allow it to be donated to a Holocaust organization, as to do so would be to grant Hanna absolution. She does, however, take Hanna's Teton as it reminds her of the Teton that had once held her childhood treasures and that was stolen from her at a concentration camp. The woman tells Michael that he can choose an organization and donate the money himself. Michael donates the money under Hannah's name to the Jewish League against illiteracy before visiting Hannah's grave for the first and only time. And that's how it ends. Oh, okay. That was longer than I thought.
1: It's longer than the book.
0: Oh! Oh man, okay. Well, sir, the first question, of course, is: Did you like it?
1: I did. Uh, this was a departure from what we've uh, read recently. It's a very, it's a, it's a pretty quick read because it was really, really engaging, and yet it's a slow burn of a read. Yeah, it's not very fast paced. It's slow paced, and it's very. Um, I don't know. He's he's really good at setting the mood where during the more sensual and erotic scenes, you, you get that feeling. And then during the more tense, the courtroom scenes, you know, you feel that tension. Um, so no, I, I really, I did enjoy this.
0: Yeah, I agree with you on all counts. And like I was saying before, I, I had to sort of pause and, and ponder some of these questions because there are several times where Michael, the narrator, or really the author as well, I think speaking to us, Will ask several questions that I guess I mean I call them rhetorical, but I think mm-hmm. it's for the the reader, lowercase and capital, to decide you know what the what what the answers are to those particular questions. So it is really thought provoking. And yeah, so I it was worthwhile. So thank you, Sam Heath. And yeah, so now we're about to get into this here. <sighs> okay, All well right. we'll talk about the title, of course. Uh, when did you realize the significance of the title itself, the reader, and that Hana was illiterate? Did you pick on up on on those right away, or did you did it delay for you?
1: delayed i didn't really pick up on it until he did um because i think i was looking for something else other than her being illiterate as the Mm -hmm. reason she kept wanting him to read to her i also didn't pick up on the fact that she was a nazi Mm -hmm. you know i was expecting i was expecting that that apartment was something she kept as as a as a secret from her family. Mm-hmm. And she was like, you know, kind of, I mean, granted, usually in this situation, the male character is the one with the secret apartment. And maybe I've read <laughs> yeah. or watched too many episodes of like, I don't know, of, of some sort of tawdry, like, you know, dateline type of shows. But, um, I was like, oh, she's, she's actually married. Like there's something about her and she's involved and she's like having an affair, and like an illicit affair, not just like, you know, um, I mean, it's pretty illicit to be, to be, you know, screwing a fifteen year old. But yeah. um but the but the illicit part of it, like she's committing adultery against her husband, I was not expecting Ilsa she wolf of the SS. So uh, yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah I think with the reader and so I had seen the film but it was one of those that was a it was far enough away that I didn't really Mm -hmm. remember details so I think the only detail I probably knew was that she was an SS officer or remembered anyways and then once the reader the reading began I thought oh okay so this is the the connection and I think I picked up a a bit sooner on the illiteracy before the trial, I think it was when she attacked him with the belt because the note was What's there note? Yeah. yeah and then the note was gone because he looks for it and so I thought you know what would she she had to go to an extreme to hide this basically mm. and why would that so I think that was the one and then after that it snapped in my mind of why she didn't ask his name because at one point he says oh well my books were always out so she must have known because she always calls him kid yeah I don't think she knew that his name was Michael maybe at the end but so that those some details were coming into place but I think that moment when she attacked him I was like oh yeah she can't read and that whole weekend and everything she how he had to plan everything it's like oh this makes sense
1: yeah I don't know why I didn't pick up on that but maybe I was just kind of lost in the plot yeah And, and I just i didn't pick up on that detail um i thought she might just be possessive in a sense
0: yeah which i think goes along with i mean we'll get i guess i didn't ask a question about that but just that well actually i do because i say is this a toxic relationship Mm, but i I feel like you fall into a good trap i I think that Mm -hmm. perhaps is a testament to the writing that you become the reader itself so you are the lowercase and the capital you are almost michael because you are so engaged in the story that you find out when he like it dawns on him as well so i feel like that's a testament potentially to the the story schlink
1: well yeah and i don't think he's trying to insult you if you don't get it before michael does and because you know there's always there's always that one guy in the audience, who, when you, when you're shocked by this, they're like, "Oh, why? You didn't, you didn't know that was coming? Like, you know, <laughs> you, know you know, you know, you know that nerd, you know that guy. We've all yeah. seen that guy, and it's always a guy. Yeah. And it's just like, congratulations, you. Somebody gave you 500 points for pointing that out, <gasps> jackass. Like so yeah, like, yeah, exactly. It's like you earn, you earn nothing. Yeah, you know,
0: absolutely." So you mentioned, you said your quote was, quote, screwing a (laughs) 15-year-old. I think I had a question here, though. I'm not sure where it was, but did this ever... Oh, yeah, okay, it was L. Is age ever an issue in this novel uh, or from the outside reader's perspective so us did you ever feel like it was an issue why or why not and then does the fact that she only calls him kid have any sort of significance
1: maybe when i was younger i would have subscribed to that double standard of the young you know where, where you would condemn you would condemn if if the if the sexes were on the opposite foot but like you know the young guy getting the uh getting the older woman is like i don't know like Again, points in a game that we all, for some reason, think we're playing. Um, you know, I mean, there's literally. Granted, Ben Ben Braddock was 22 when he has the when he had the affair with Mrs. Robinson and the graduates, so they're both of age. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is Lolita. This is like a, a, a gender swap Lolita. Yeah. And um, now I've never read or seen Lolita. I, I own the movie and a because I own a Stanley Kubrick box set, but. Um, I've never watched it, and I've heard, I've heard really good things about Nabokov's novel. I just it's it's on my list. Let's just say that. But I do find it I I find it very a little creepy in places, and there's something very like I, I don't know. I, there's there are some very sensual and erotic things about it, and then there's this weird like I'm gonna treat you like I'm your motherness about it that I find um squicky. Hmm. So. So I, I don't. I, I think that um, to me there is a little bit of an issue with mm-hmm. with the age difference, um, and I think she is taking advantage of him. But it's not all one sided because he clearly is, um, you know, acting on his own here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kid, uh, the kid thing you mentioned because of the because of the fact she didn't know his name, because she couldn't read it, and she never bothered to ask. So I totally understand that. But at the same time, there's like a Oh, it maybe it's like a little bit of an authority thing or something. It's 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 a it's a it's a very subtle way of, of asserting your dominance, hmm. um, and not in a dominatrix way. And granted, yeah. she doesn't ESS, but but in a just in a in a in that sort of even a lighter power play of asserting your dominance, you're asserting your authority of the other person, especially since she's probably compensating for the fact that she can't read
0: mm. or write. Yeah. Do you feel like that's true? That interpretation is true also at the end because she, at the end of the book, she's still calling him kid.
1: Yeah. Although I wonder if at the end it's a little more affectionate than it is with that motivation of power because she's seen how he has grown in the last 30 years or 20 years, however long it is that she's in jail for mm-hmm. or since their affair because, you know, he's grown and everything. And, and, I don't know. They have like, there's a mutual respect. They have, she has like a lot more respect for him. Not that she didn't, but there's like, there's this respect that she has. And I think it's, it's more of an affection and it's a wistful one. Cause she, she can't face the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a sadness in her ending as Nazi as she was. There is the, and I know we're going to get to talking about this, but there's a sadness in the fact that she hung, hanged herself. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, the, the, and and maybe it got stirred up by all of this sort of wistful conversation with with Michael and and just the memory of everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for me I I agree that I think there are some really uncomfortable moments. I for me the first the first sexual encounter, uh the first pelvic affiliation was really weird because it was the second full time I guess that they had been together and third if you count his his sickness or whatever and it's just like what what's happened it was so quick I I didn't expect that at all and he lies about his age which I wonder did she actually believe him I feel like she didn't but she just kind of went went with it but I don't know if it's like the time period or the fact that the narrator is clearly from the adult like an older perspective that it almost like it almost feels like it gets a free pass because it it's not focused on a great deal but we do have those tricky situations where like the mother and son like oh that that that's a bit weird <laughs> isn't it yeah. isn't it and yeah i'm trying to think of what the feeling is of call me by your name because there's that is also there's an age discrepancy hmm. there though i think it's below 10 years but I can't I can't remember exactly and I think you feel it a bit more but just it's almost feels like because it's out of time like a word a little farther back than now that almost the um what's it called taboo is almost like not there or it's maybe the cultural thing but I didn't feel it as much as I think I would have with Lolita which I have Red mm-hmm. um, or if it were like modern day when you're like really hyper aware of things I don't know if it's like the time and place almost gives it some help to make it a bit more palatable
1: yeah the the concept of statutory rape is something that I became familiar with when I was in high school because of the Amy Fisher Joey but story because I was a sophomore in high school when that hit its tawdry tawdry. Front page TV movie greatness, and um, now she was underage. She was sixteen, and uh, he was in his thirties or forties or something. And that was, you know, that 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 took a turn because he basically she she tried to kill her, could kill his wife, and all that. But but the idea that. The that grossness of the and it was always it was always the younger woman with the older man mm-hmm. and the dirty old man. And, and and that sort of kind of grossness affiliated with it, um, is was something I was very, very aware of. But like I said, back even back and even now with a number of, of guys, there is a double standard of the calling the girl in that situation a slut and the guy in that situation stud you know of the guy who's getting the older woman like yeah man but um but yeah i I think that nowadays it is definitely more controversial i don't know or maybe maybe back then it was easier to keep it under wraps you know Mm. um i mean it's still easy to keep i don't speak from experience here but i do know it's still it's With effort, you can keep an affair secret. In these, mm. or else people wouldn't have affairs. But I wonder if things were done such done behind such closed doors. And uh, you know, there's also a detachment from his parents and him mm-hmm. that allows him to kind of like go out, roam free, and kind of get away with the stuff because they're not paying enough attention to him, or they're not that that he can that he has a he has an avenue in which to get away with it.
0: Yeah. And I feel like the only one who may have been on to him was his sister. Mm-hmm. Though I didn't realize he had two sisters, so I'm assuming it's his older sister. But she kind of gives him the side eye at, at certain points. And I think in particular there's a discussion and they're talking about, was it Goethe? Goethe and an affair he had or something like yeah, that? Yeah, or... that's
1: the, the German writer.
0: Yeah, and uh, he, it, I guess Michael went on a soapbox and talked about it. And she's like, this is a bit weird, you know, yeah. kind of the, he doth protest too much situation. So that would be the, yeah, the only one. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there is a lot of sex. <laughs> um. And so I'll we'll talk sort of sensual, sensual things for the next two questions. First of all, why, why all the bathing?
1: <laughs> I, the, that's, that's another thing where I'm like, it's this very weird to me, mother that that's why I said the mother son thing it's just it feels very like like she's washing him down like a like you would wash a young child um and that's where it got I didn't see I didn't find that particularly sensual no I found it very strange yeah you know not that it's not uncommon for for people to use showering in that regard and sure. you know that's um, it's definitely something that uh, you know that uh, you know people the two consenting adults you know ha- have done and do, but here the age difference and maybe it's just me the age difference makes it seem uh, the dynamic shift, and I you know I, I I thought of like as if she's bathing a little boy and it and it mm. got it got a very very weird for me. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and and it's she is adamant about, like, there always needs to be showering beforehand. Yeah. Uh Even if they're not engaging in pelvic affiliation in the shower, that, like, there always needs to be something. And I wasn't sure if it's a Lady, lady Macbeth situation I... where she's, like, trying to wash away, you know, I don't know, her past sins. You know, if we're getting metaphorical or thinking about the past and maybe there's just a time she couldn't bathe very often so now she really makes up for it. I'm not sure.
1: She doesn't. Um, I'm sorry. Let me start the sentence over. She doesn't. When they reveal things in the trial, there's no revelation of her making people bathe yeah. her or whatever. Yeah. That the that it only seems like exclusive to him. Yeah. Whereas the reading comes out in the trial. So.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. It's. It's just. Yeah. Like I said. It's. Um. I suppose it's. I suppose there's something central about it. But it, to me, like I said, I maybe I'm maybe I'm clouded by the age difference. And I don't find it as as sexy as somebody else might.
0: (laughs) Were there any other pieces of evidence that might point to her being like OCD almost?
1: That's possible. I mean, she was a Nazi. Was there
0: a lot? I mean, I can't remember what her apartment, if it was (sighs) ordered or, you know. Uh,
1: You know, I can't remember off the top of my head, but she certainly was particular in certain ways she didn't go out very much Mm -hmm. you know there was the whole thing of you know her her making him order at the restaurant and all and plan the trip and all that was again I was so I didn't pick up on the illiteracy thing because I was like well she's been kind of ordering him around the whole time yeah you know so it just made sense to me and she would and she is a little particular I don't know I don't know if it's if it's an OCD thing if it's a She wasn't a Nazi in hiding because they do mention that prior to her being brought up for trial, she had to report to the local authorities. Kind of like
0: parole, it
1: seems like. Yeah, parole, probation, or although in the United States, this didn't become a law until... I think it was the early 2000s and well it was the, of 94 but i don't know if that you know but for all i know that's not what what schlink was was ref- referencing but it did mm. make me think of like you know how sex offenders have to register gotcha. um yeah. you know and she wasn't a criminalized sex offender mm-hmm. but it's that that's the image i jumped to because that's the touchstone in our culture where you have to hear about somebody registering them but if if x x s s people who at that point had not been convicted or found, you know, or had any indictments on them, I could imagine that the German government might be like, yeah, you still have to come to uh, the local authority and let us know that you're here. So
0: yeah, but I think the difference, at least it seems like in at this time period in Germany is that Whereas I think everyone knows that in the U.S. would know that there's a sex offender living near you mm-hmm. or working for you. It yeah. seems like no her employer, the people that she was renting from, they didn't know that. Or at least they didn't mention. But it seemed like in this particular novel, they definitely would have mentioned something.
1: Yeah. Uh, maybe, I don't know, like maybe, maybe cleaning him off and bathing themselves, there's – establishes some sort of purity of their relationship within that space so that it Mm -hmm. doesn't bring in the outside worlds when they're in bed together you know like she's creating a bubble in a sense Mm -hmm. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm grasping at straws here I'm I'm just trying to figure out like what why why bathe this kid
0: yeah Uh, so maybe that's what it is yeah the only disagreement I would have with that is just some of her arguments seem to be about well i just remember the first big argument when he didn't ride on the first trolley car uh-huh. because he didn't think she would want him to and he said i and I can't remember, like, you didn't notice me, and then she said something like, you didn't want to notice me. It was like that whole thing. So it seems like some of their arguments, though, do come from the outside world. Mm-hmm. So that would be my only disagreement on that. But that's potential, I mean. Yeah. I don't know why. I, I don't know why. <laughs> she, she's got something for cleanness, which then will connect to this next question. Uh, the sense of smell is really important in this particular story. I think it was probably actually towards the end in part three, which was interesting, Oh, I remember he was sitting next to her as an old lady and he was comparing the different smells. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what is it? Why is the sense of smell so important in this story? What is it about Hana that so strongly provokes kids (laughs) or Michael's desire? Uh, And and then I guess it connects to why do you feel like she might be the only one that Michael may have loved, may have been able to love?
1: One of the interesting things about the... um... I think it's the conversation at the end of the novel that he has with the Jewish survivor. I think that's where she basically does a whole psychoanalysis on him. And then she's like, I I bet you've been married once and it didn't work out. In other words, this woman messed you up. Yeah. And you, and uh, you know, he, he is, he tries to come off as a mature 15 year old because he's a smart kid, but he's not. And he's very immature. And, and the, maybe the, the acceleration of, of sex at that age, because 15 is not a very old age to start having. It's a very, very young age to start having sex. Mm -hmm. I know, I know that there are people out there who kind of like chuckle at that, but like, you know, that's young. You're, you're a freshman, sophomore in high school. It's not, it's not a very, very, you know, you're not very mature. And I can totally see what, provokes his desire from a carnal level i mean like he even mentioned you know like he's he's hanging out with you know he's there's girls i mean later on there's this girl with sophie i believe her name is Mm. you know and and she kind of you know he has a thing for her. i think they actually they go out on a date and i think she uh i don't think they have do they have sex or i think she just uh (laughs) i or i think they just fool around you might be right. I think I they, they think at they least fool around. around. I don't think they they have total sex, but um, yeah, with her like Hana, he sees her, and this is like a, I mean, you'd be. I know why he ran, you know, like he because he's immature. He's like, wow, like wow, here's a naked woman, and it's really, it is really, you know, sensual, erotic. What have you? It's not like he's like a med student examining a cadaver and going like, "Oh yeah, an naked woman." No, it's like she's putting on her stockings. It's it's a real like he's he's and there's something because he's he she's not doing it deliberately in front of him the first time. He's peeking mm-hmm. around, so it's voyeuristic.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, there's the the sense of you're doing something forbidden and you're doing something illicit and wrong, and that's totally appealing to a fifteen year old boy, you know. Mm-hmm. So from just the very, I mean, granted, German culture might be different than American culture, but from just the very basic instincts of 15-year-old boys, um, I totally see what the appeal is. The sense of smell, I'm not entirely sure about. What did you think?
0: Yeah, well, I, I found that page, at least with uh, on page 196, when, she, mm-hmm. when he... Sees her again and says, "In the past, I particularly loved her smell. She always smelled fresh, freshly washed or fresh laundry or fresh sweat. So I feel like there's that connection with the bathing. So I don't know if it connects with that and and just like everything's sort of cyclical and mm. like one thing leads to another in his mind. I am not sure. Maybe his yeah. I I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. I mean, smell." has such a connection with memory, too. Yeah. So I guess, you know, if all of these times with her just evoke such passion and, mm-hmm. and fun times for him, I guess, yeah, no. You know then, then yeah. perhaps the smells is how he remembers these moments with her.
1: Yeah. And it's very possible that, you know, being in this experience, the smells are so unique to that experience with her that mm-hmm. it's the thing that he he holds on to the most. You're right. It's so tied to memory. I don't know where I was, and this might have been a few weeks or a couple months ago, but I caught a whiff of like I was in I was oh. in public. Yeah. Cause it wouldn't have been with I wouldn't it wouldn't have been my wife, but I was in public and I caught a whiff of somebody's like shampoo or something. Uh-huh. And it totally smelled it might have been the same shampoo like an old girlfriend of mine from high school wore. And like and I had that. Like the moment I smelled it, I was like you know, that memory was triggered so i totally mm. understand yeah. what you know and and you know there are other smells that trigger things you know that, that have nothing to do with girls or sex but but just like on this level like i can totally understand that there are certain smells that remind you of certain people mm-hmm. and you know that was that was uh or certain places and things like that so
0: yeah it's interesting you you mentioned about the stocking and I, I can't help but you know number one think to the Christmas story that <laughs> lamp the lamp but also he he's confesses that there were future lovers that he had that he would ask if they would take off their stockings or put them on or something like that uh, so it almost became like... It always seems like it became a fetish for yeah. him of like watching that, but it, it it didn't evoke the same feelings in in him as as Hanna did. I you know I feel like part of it I think you know I think we're on to something, and we could be way off, but I feel like we're on to something with this mother son situation, mm-hmm. which is really now that we're like really getting into it is like really weird and bad. <laughs> but the first time he meets her, she is helping him because he threw up yeah, and just she cleaning sick. him off and everything so that's like the first time and I don't know if there is this sort of connect- is this what is that Oedipal is there an Oedipal, Oedipal situation Oedipal con- it's,
1: yeah I was just yeah. about to say that Freud would have a field day with this he, I mean
0: yeah
1: yeah it's 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 something very Oedipal
0: because I'm just wondering, you know, is it just Hana or could it have been anyone that he met, you know, that it is, you know, the secret thing, this older woman? Or is it just something particular about her? I mean, she is mysterious. She doesn't really talk about her past at all. She doesn't ask for any sort of commitment, which I guess several guys would probably be like, yeah, you know, that's what we're looking for. Uh, but, you know, he's 15. He probably... This guy it seems like he was really in love with her. But it, yeah, I, I can't tell if it's something about her or it is being a 15-year-old and well for the first time. But it clearly had to have been just something about her because it really did mess him up. It doesn't seem like he really loved, loved anyone at the end. Like, he, she always just lingered with him. But I'm, I'm not sure what it is about Hana, U- unless we talk about the alley and that there is some sort of mother-son situation there and and almost she imprinted on him and you know for lack of a better term and and he's just like this awakening happened and it happened to be with hannah
1: yeah no i think i think that's probably the best explanation for it because you know his marriage is his marriage it's a shotgun wedding you know Mm -hmm. she gets pregnant so so it's not by his choice and um he keeps the affair with Hannah a secret, not that it would matter to Gertrude because, well, it would not matter to Gertrude in that it's, I don't think they knew each other. You know, it's not like it happened simultaneously, but it it falls apart. He feels guilty about the daughter, you know, and, uh, you know, so the relationships, but he's always comparing them to her. Mm -hmm. So on an American romantic comedy level, she's the, or American romantic love story level. She's the one that got away, but, Mm. This is much more than that. And there is something, yeah, like I'm I'm not very good at psychoanalyzing things like this because I'm not a psychologist. But there is something very like you could psycho, you could you could analyze this as like, you know, some love lost between him and his mother, perhaps, or him wanting to be taken care of in a way that he felt that he wasn't. And it became sexualized.
0: Mm. Oh, man. Mm. Well, I think I want to ask two more questions about the relationship, and sure. then I, I want to get off of that. I mean, part one, even though <laughs> it, it fully informs the rest of the novel, I feel like it's the shortest part, but I, I could be wrong. The relationship is rather short for a how deeply impactful can i use it that way deeply impactful it is
1: yeah the time frame because it's not a very long relationship i think it's what about the the around a school year or so or thereabouts um but it it it, the effect on him is decades and decades and decades so i believe that the i think you're right and then the amount of time spent on the affair versus the amount of time in which the affair affects him And the times which we see through two times where she appears back into his life, I think it's proportional Mm. in a sense, you know, I I wouldn't do the math, but I think that's what he's going for. There's like a proportion to that and to see the, the effect is much longer.
0: Mm hmm. I'm going to sort of connect, I think, K with M. if you've got your, yep. your doc looking at this. So I do ask if this is a toxic relationship, <laughs> which, I mean, that might be one of those dumb, like, yeah, of course it is. But do you feel like it, it might be something within Hannah, Hannah that, you know, she, there are these arguments, and he always bows to her, and then she has these blowups and things, or is it her experience in history? And I want to connect it with Kay because the Jewish daughter is clearly a survivor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered if Kid was could also be considered a victim or survivor in a, in a similar fashion. And then if so, if we do consider him a victim and a survivor of Hana, what did Hana do to him? And I was thinking about page 213. Um, it's near the bottom. Uh, did you ever feel when you had contact with her in those last years that she knew what she had done to you? And I and I kind of pondered that quest or question for a while. That that quote. So kind of it's it's all together this relationship. How do you view this relationship between them? Is there any beauty or goodness in there whatsoever? If there's not, do you think it's because of Hana or just the experiences that she went through as an SS officer? And then do you feel like? kid is a victim in this relationship. Did he survive? And then what is it exactly that Hanna did that the the Jewish um, survivor had, had mentioned to him?
1: I think in some way he is a victim. I don't think he thinks of self as a victim because I think at one point he thinks he's going to save her mm. in a sense, or he's going to redeem her. It's a total long shot. You can't redeem a person like this, especially in the eyes of the people who survive them. But I think he, you know, he's just tapping into something where it's like, no, I can, I can fix the situation which is a very male trait, by the way, she says that woman was truly brutal. Did you ever get over the fact that you were only 15 when she, no, you said yourself that you began reading to her. Like the woman is putting it all together. And that's when she asks, did you ever get married? And then the marriage was short and unhappy and you never married again. And the child, if there is one, is in boarding school. She's like, I know, I know this pattern. I know, like, I can totally see this. I can read you. She's reading him, you know, mm, in a sense. Yep. And when she asks him, essentially, if he's a victim, he blows her off. And he deflects it back onto her because he says, I shrug my shoulders in any case. She knew what she had done to people in the camp. And on the March, she didn't just tell me that she dealt with it intensively during her last years in prison. I told her what the warden had said, which isn't going to matter to the victim. Mm -hmm. Of the Holocaust, you know, this is you you can you can tell me all you want that she felt sorry for what she had done. But the fact that she went out and let some people die in that church and then helped murder or murdered um, Jewish prisoners in a death march it's not going to like you're feeling sorry is not going to erase it. And I think I think it's a very, very valid. I mean, I, I find that a justified anger that she's still anger with this woman years later. And th- to the fact where she doesn't want her money, you know, because the money again wasn't was an effort and an apology. She's like, yeah. I don't want it. You can do whatever you want with it. And he donates it to, um, you know, an organization and yeah. he and he's and he's trying to be like and he's trying to present it that way to her like oh but she felt bad and she was trying to redeem herself in this because because he doesn't he's in denial mm. over whether or not he was a victim he is but he also and i think he clearly would say that that he bears responsibility too you know that like you know he was a willing participant in the affair but at the same time he was seduced and manipulated you know so I, I don't think I don't know. I don't want to use the word rape here because I, I don't think that it's statute, statutory rape, obviously, but that's that's a totally different thing. I, I don't know, but you know, because I, I, I hear the word get thrown around for things like this, and I'm like, I granted I am not the person to judge whether or not something's rape, so I don't want to also don't want to discount that, but I don't know. I, I think that I think that she he is a victim and he is in denial about it, but at the same time. Um, I think he does have a good perspective on the fact that he voluntarily did things even though she totally messed him up.
0: Yeah, I think that's when his victimhood really comes into play. Is it was almost like the long game mm-hmm. rather than something immediate that was happening. I think we, mm-hmm. we do have the immediacy that, you know, she's a predator, obviously, with this 15-year-old kid. Yeah, But I think the the impact of what this relationship – Caused is far-reaching, and so he perhaps he can't see it because it has been so long. Even though there are all these pieces of evidence, I mean, he talks about his you know poor relationships with other women, and then yeah, you have his marriage, his failed marriage, and then his failed relationship with his daughter. So,
1: do you think that if he if it had only happened once, and then she had turned around and said, "Look, kid, um, I made a mistake." That things would have been different? Would he have become obsessed with her? Would he have turned her over to the authorities? Oh, interesting. You know, like, just trying to speculate the what-ifs of yeah. Of, yeah, of scenario. I, yeah. I,
0: I wonder if he would have tried to, like, pursue the relationship even though mm-hmm. uh, the woman is saying no. But then perhaps over time, though, I wonder how his life would have turned out because she's really the one that prodded him to finish his sophomore year because at that point he had missed so much because of the hepatitis that he thought he would have to redo everything. Yeah, She, she like, shames him and says, like, no sex for you until you do your studies, young man. (laughs) And he's able to get the top of his class, and everything changes for him when he moves up. And that's when he – becomes popular i guess we could say whereas i think situation so, so i i don't want to be like oh that this whole thing was positive in the in the short run for him but i i think cert- his life would have probably been rather different yeah um, and you do like, have that without it
1: yeah and you do have that scene at the pool where he sees her but doesn't acknowledge her yeah and i think that makes her feel shameful yeah because or ashamed, because and then he never sees her again until you know years and years later, yeah. Um, because she was because he's her secret, mm-hmm. and now among other secrets, but now she's his secret, and
0: yeah, yeah, pretty interesting. I, I will say, we're this is this is a tough discussion to have just because to a certain extent. Or to what extent, really? You know, can we defend Hana? And there's some questions that I'll be asking. That mm-hmm. this—it's a tough, it's a gray episode for sure. But I, in my opinion, I feel like Hana isn't. Well, gosh, I'm thinking about some of the testimonies there. But I just feel like her experiences kind of hardened her. And I don't know if Hana before the SS would have been as. Sort of, maniac- I don't know, controlling and mm. somewhat emotionally abusive or, you know, a- as she is with Michael now. Uh, and that could have just been sort of training and instilled in her. But, you know, if, if it's if they weren't confusing who this person was in the trial, because it's it seemed very murky for me anyways, mm-hmm. then. I, I don't know if you can be taught that sort of innate cruelty and everything. So in yeah. that case I'd be like, Well, that's just coming from her. But it's just interesting that belt episode, once she hits him, she's about to hit him a second time and she drops it and then she breaks into tears and you're like, Yikes, this this lady's messed up.
1: Yeah, there there's that's um Yeah, that 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 is a sign that she's very, very messed up. And we don't get through his observations. The anti-Semitism that we've come to expect from guards in, in the SS. Granted, my reference point is Knight and Mouse, you know, which you know, I mean, and, and it's which is rightfully demonstrations of Nazi cruelty. It's very weird here to, I don't know, I don't want to say you feel sympathy for a Nazi, but you know, it's very weird here to to feel um, to feel for a character who has committed such terrible atrocities. But yeah, I think that that belt incident, especially afterward, when we find out who she is and you go back and think to the incident because it's a really important incident. Also, the biggest clue, like you said, in finding out that she's illiterate and you do feel a little bit for her because of the effect that this has had on her personality or what she's repressing or whatever it's, it you know, if you if you don't feel for her, you're at least intrigued because you're you're seeing a side of her that she's. Again, controlling, you know, like she is trying to be in control of everything she was and trying to hide it in the same way we go back to the baths and stuff like what we were talking about earlier. You know, if it's not OCD. It's definitely a, a sense of uh, control over what she can control. So or hide.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, man. A tough, tough one. Mm-hmm. OK, I think I'm going to get to the big quote that I want to talk about and then. We can kind of go from there. So this is, I just deleted things I shouldn't have done it. So I feel like one of the biggest quotes in this novel is it's on page one fifty seven. For those of us who I feel like we all have the same copy, I want it's middle middle second paragraph. I want it simultaneously to understand Hanna's crime and to condemn it. But it was too terrible for that. When I tried to understand it, I had the feeling I was failing to condemn it as it must be condemned. When I condemned it as it must be condemned, there was no room for understanding. But even as I want to understand Hana, failing to understand her meant betraying her all over again. I could not resolve this. I want to pose myself both tasks, understanding and condemnation, but it was impossible to do both. Uh, and a quote from one of Sam's papers, at least, which I thought was good, is that the message from the reader is that there's no clear grounding morality, reality, and interpretation. At best, you figure these out for yourself with what contextuality works what contextually works but even that is difficult an act especially a moral one cannot be simultaneously comprehended and condemned you must choose oh okay so i've got some i mean i think that's a an amazing quote right there just because it is really hard to sort of think through but does this novel uh, almost get rid of the author and i feel like didn't michael bailey write in at one point and talk about death of the author? so here we go yeah we we're
1: talking about, i think the green mile maybe oh
0: okay yeah, yeah. in context and things like that yeah. does it get rid of the author and ask us the reader i guess lowercase to determine meaning and then as a couple follow-ups is context king for this novel and determining sort of right and wrong and whether we can be empathetic or sympathetic with hana uh, and, the, yeah, the big one, which is what I mentioned at the top, is can we use past sins to make moral decisions in the present? Could this be a model? Or, well, we'll talk about that this is not necessarily our story. I do have a question about that. Um, so lots of stuff, but it's a big quote to sort of pull apart. So I figured we could talk about this for a little bit.
1: I think with the question of past sins in context, I think they're both related. Because you have to remember how personally invested he is in with the affair. He can't separate comprehension and condemnation because he was intimate with this woman. Mm. If you're more detached and you are a true spectator, perhaps one of his classmates, I think you can comprehend the crime and condemn her for it as well. Because Mm. comprehension is a sort of understanding and I think the part of empathy, even if empathy doesn't necessarily have to be positive towards somebody, right? It just has to be is sometimes empathy can just essentially be understanding the thought process of somebody mm-hmm. or, or being able to see through that lens, the rationale to which they reached a conclusion. Um, because, you know, you, I don't know, in some cases, because you're, because you grew up around a lot of people who were very, very conservative or, or, or have beliefs that are d- diametrically opposed to yours. But since you grew up around them, you can objectively see the logic by which they reach their conclusions and you, uh, you understand their beliefs and that because they've been spelled out for you your entire life. You've seen them and you've observed them. I think that's comprehending it, but you can still condemn that. Mm-hmm. You know, understanding something doesn't mean approving it. It just means that you understand it. It's knowing it's knowing your enemy. Um, he can't do that because he had sex with her and he mm-hmm. had a long time affair and he was in love with her. It's clouding his judgments. Now, past sins. I think there are varying degrees of it. Would I forget? You know, well, she, she had a past sin. she was a Nazi concentration camp guard. Like, I think that's a little more extreme than say, I don't know, me thinking you probably shouldn't forgive Jane Fonda for a stupid mistake she made back in 1973, oh, you know, but at the same time, you know, with the exception of vets who are still very, very um, upset about that, and my yeah. opinion has always been that, you know, they have a right to feel that because they were in the middle of a war, but some 20 something young QAnon punk who brings that up on Twitter all the time, it's like, dude, you were not there. And this is not your generation. So you really need to shut up about something that happened 50 years before you were born. But I digress. You cannot it depends on what you did, and it depends on what the person did. Because if the person did something really stupid and it and if it's a low degree of damage to the people around them, then yeah, you should not weigh their, you know, their past sins of the sins of the past, which I'm sure was like a X-Men crossover. You know, <laughs> <I think laughs> just it's, it's, right. it has to be or, yeah. or a Spider-Man crossover yeah. or it, it's definitely a comic. Sins of the father, yeah. I think. There's sins of the father, there might have been sins of the past. Yeah, I think it's, that's it, a Norman Osborn. Sounds very Marvel Comics. Um, yeah. but the, your sins of the past shouldn't really come back to haunt you if they're not something that's really really atrocious, you know? This is atrocious. This should come back to haunt her. This should stay with her cuz she was a Nazi.
0: Mm could that also <laughs> be true for i guess a nation as a whole
1: yes <laughs> we have we have because our we, we we as a nation need to need to understand the sins of our past and we need to comprehend them and we need to rightfully condemn them as well and we have not done a very good job of that mm. you have 250 to 300 years of treating african americans either as slaves or second-class citizens, you know, through both slavery and Jim Crow. That's the majority of our history. You know, we we can't say, oh, well, that's in the past because A, the people who say that's in the past are the same people who like to fly the Confederate flag. But B, it's an enormous part of the past that you've chosen to willfully ignore. So you you need to come to terms with that. And yes, it's going to be a lot of condemnation and guilt, just as she needs to come to terms with her own past, but it's also going to be you need to understand it because condemnation, I think, without comprehension, it can be toxic as well.
0: Okay. So, am I correct in hearing you that I yes no sense. That answer, yes, That we can <laughs> use past sins to make moral decisions of the present, but in regards to people, there should be, like, an ability for grace to sort of, like, give them grace for something that they've done in the past and let them, I think let that on. not be a continue stain on their character yes
1: but it depends on what it is okay because I am not going to give a rapist grace <laughs> and I'm not going to give a child molester grace and I'm not going to give OJ okay. um, Simpson grace you know an abuser but you know because those are those are crimes those hurt people but if you were uh, I don't know if, if you did you know there were uh, but there are other things you may have done that were stupid in your past and if those come back to haunt you um I think there's some allowance for grace, but it really depends on what it is
0: okay so context is can context
1: is very very important yes, okay, but knowing knowing the full history of somebody can be too
0: yeah, do you feel so then my 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 first question there is do you feel like the novel that schlink purposefully purposely purposely gets rid of himself and puts us the reader lowercase? T- as the the people who have to decide the meaning of, of the trial and the things that are going on and we need to, to mark, wade through the grayness of it? Or do you think he's still present and he is saying something?
1: I tend to fall toward the former because I think he wants us to come to our own conclusion. I mean, maybe, he, maybe he's pushing us in a direction, but he's like mm-hmm. being deliberately like oblique. Yeah. And I think that's the word. He is doing this with a lot of nuance. Mm-hmm which is what I really liked about it. Um, You know, there, there, it's a very, very complicated answer.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Uh, But I am glad you, you brought up, you know, that empathy isn't always, yeah, have, have a, a positive association mm-hmm. or i guess empathy itself is i think always po- good to have yeah 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 but you don't always have to be empathizing with positive pe- like there could be terrible people that mm-hmm. we could like well i understand yeah, what that person's doing but i do not yeah,
1: yeah i, I don't it's not always going to lead good. to forgiveness um yeah. under- and understanding can go both ways cuz there's understanding because you just need to understand you know the yeah the mentality
0: do you feel like Because this is the genre of of overcoming the past, is that something that Germany at this time and this generation that is growing up with their parents, there's that whole... There are a couple sections, but I, I know mm-hmm. there's, there's a longer section about sort of the the youth now. This that that current generation and and holding their their parents to account is that generation lacking empathy? Do they just want to straight condemn without understanding?
1: I I think that on solo they lack it, but it's something that they have to work to achieve because I you know and granted I'm trying to I don't know much about Germany post war in terms of that cultural feeling about the Nazism. Um, My context has always been like, you know, East versus West in terms of the Cold War. But I could imagine that if you are doing a, if you've got a pendulum swing where you're condemning the past just as a culture, you know, and trying to come face to face with it and and trying to reconcile, you know, all those things, then there is going to be a knee jerk reaction to or or a, or a straight up just anger at that generation. So I, I understand that um, because it's, you know, it's a it's, it's a it's a natural thing among generations, you know, for for the for the one after to think they know more than the one before and to condemn the one before for what they did, especially when they're young in their formative years or in their early 20s and things or right around the time of the trial. I think you soften as you get older or you you maybe you grow if you grow you reach some more understanding and stuff um but but yeah i think i think yeah kind of like they're they might be too quick to condemn but considering the the short amount of distance a generation's distance between that and and nazi germany i can totally understand why they would
0: mm-hmm. yeah 169 is kind of a big section on this which mm-hmm. is talking about parental expectations uh, and then it also gets into collective guilt as well about what had happened.
1: Do you think this is um, Schlink reinserting himself then? If he's taken us out for the, uh, if he's taken himself out a little bit for the trial and asked us to come to our own conclusions about Hana, um, yeah. do you think that this is him inserting himself a little bit to, to just make a comment about the way things had gone?
0: Potentially. I mean, I wonder if that may have been his experience. Mm-hmm. Though his father seemed to be rather similar to, well, I shouldn't say rather similar. He seems similar to Michael's father. The fact that he didn't really do anything mm-hmm. for the Nazi Party because he was an anti-Nazi confessing an anti what was it anti-Nazi confessed pastor, anti-Nazi confessing church. But at the same, it seems like all parents of that particular generation were needed to be or were held accountable just like that they were somehow involved which is i guess that collect collected guilt Mm -hmm. collective guilt that it just because you were a part of germany at the time then you're you happen to be you've got blood on your hands no matter what you were doing so potentially i i wonder if it comes from sort of a biographical place there some of those interactions with his father his
1: father yeah i wonder that too
0: but i i think it's also what was really happening with mm-hmm. that generation at the time so yeah i think he does reinsert himself and and let us know and and i wonder i mean what the intention was because it seemed like well it's a bestseller for germany and america and mm-hmm. probably it was you know it came out of germany first and then it popped but i just wonder like how does that work did he maybe want it to go to America first? And it's not like I didn't see it on England. I think it, it won a French prize. So I just thinking about the Allies, like what nations have this particular book and is it if there was any sort of authorial intent for how it was published, which is probably out of his control. I yeah, that's wonder true. if there's any significance in that. No.
1: I do know that when I think of a generational conflict in terms of this World War II generation, the generation that came after it was that the 15, 20 years after the war had ended, or 20 years after the war had ended, we're in Vietnam, and it's a much different war. But you have that generational struggle between part of that gen- younger generation that is protesting that war with the parents who were in World War II or Korea, and especially World War II, where they fought the good fight, you know, that you, that they, they manned up to borrow a bad phrase and fought for their country because it was the right thing to do because they were standing up to Nazi oppression. Whereas, you know, Vietnam is a lot more complicated and it's, uh, and you have the sense of, I'm being drafted and I don't want to fight because I'm seeing the United States as uh, as an aggressor here or that we're in a war that we're not going to win or, you know, just there's just a lot out there what, that you're seeing. That's just like, I don't want to fight in this war. And there's there was a generational conflict in the major in a big way because one generation who signed up and and stood up when they were called went and the other one is saying no we won't go so i mean that's it's it's a, if if you're thinking it from an american perspective it's a good juxtaposition with what you're seeing here because you have a con- country that's trying to deal with the past of being on the other side of that very war
0: mm mm-hmm. mhm well, the next two questions I think I'll have, or I guess we'll set as like an in defense of Hannah question mark. Mm-hmm. Uh, does she deserve defense? So on page 133, he asks some questions on so another section. He talks about her being illiterate. But could Hannah's shame at being illiterate be sufficient reason for her behavior at the trial or in the camp to accept exposure as a criminal for fear of being exposed as an illiterate to commit crimes to avoid the same thing? So do you answer, you know, yes to any of those questions? Can one, can she uh. be to a certain extent? I know. And then the other part is just do you – believe his judgment or his thinking is kind of rosy thinking that hana was choosing some of these prisoners to make their life bearable towards the end or do you think like he's just trying to make it positive i think
1: he's rationalizing in a big way although you know i i think that at the trial especially since she spotted him and yeah. was still very ashamed of the illiteracy. I can understand it being a sufficient reason for her behavioral at the trial, but come on, <laughs> I'm illiterate, asking, so I'm gonna, so I'm right. gonna be a, t- I'm gonna be a cruel SS guard. Yeah, come on. There's the, because he, he, he's rationalizing and he's trying to reconcile the two, uh, two aspects of his relationship with her.
0: Yeah, and it's the it's a bit. <sighs> I feel like I I just there's no definitive of like what her nature actually was mm-hmm. because I could excuse her becoming an SS guard if only because the whole system that like she was in like it, it she was kind of forced into that just with her circumstances so her illiteracy caused that to happen yeah and then, but everything after that you're like oh you know a church like, is on fire and you're not letting anyone out that's a problem yeah like be- so you can only excuse it a bit
1: yeah like beaten down built back up and turned to a Nazi in a sense yeah. you know that 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 you that she is a victim herself but that's not the case and honestly the only details that we ever see of her and her personal Personality is what she wants to show us.
0: Mm, Very true. And
1: then secondhand, all the characterization either comes directly through her and what she shows him, and therefore what she shows us, or secondhand through opinions of other people. But we never have an incident where we see her uh, aside from court testimony. We never are able to. You know, that's what we have to do to make our judgment. We never actually just objectively are able to watch her. Um, it's always through his eyes or the testimony of somebody else.
0: And the fact that, I mean, it, it got a little shifty as... Hell, basically, mm-hmm. at the end, because he, you know, thus, there are many different stories in the addition to the one I have written. They guarantee that the written one is the right one wise, in the fact that I wrote another. Uh, but I mean, he goes, he talks about, you know, new details popped up and everything. And I'm like, yeah, I wonder how reliable this narrator really is yeah. in terms of everything. But yeah, I mean... It, it kind of reminds me of Hunger Game Zero, frankly, when you're in – yeah, and just in that perspective and everything is coming from that and you're like, well, I, I have no one else to – I can't really believe him, but there is no other perspective
1: yeah, cause, that I can Yeah, because you're – I mean, and in that one, you are getting the villain's story, you know. So, yeah, yeah, So sure. um Yeah, so that's yeah. a really, really good point.
0: Uh, So we're going to, I mean, we could probably talk about this for a while. Uh, Oh, and I do, actually, before I get into those last three, I just actually have a question. Page 156, and this is almost like when you ask me, what's what's that joke about the the gate guard i'm like I oh I and know, Macbeth. Like, tom what's the joke it's a penis joke it's, it's or what was it wasn't it was a sex joke yeah, it was, it was it? about
1: it was about how um <laughs> how alcohol gets you all horny, yeah and it causes your penis to be flaccid.
0: there you go but this i like legitimately just wonder what's happening he goes uh which i guess we could have talked that was another thing of his lack of feeling when he visits a concentration camp but he's in a i guess a pub and there's this raucous crowd of like three men and then this an old man came in without greeting anyone he wore short pants and had a wooden leg and he's sitting at the bar and uh the raucous crowd they're throwing some stuff at him and michael shouts stop it and then the man like comes on over and he starts uh he pulls off his leg, I guess, his wooden leg, and crashes it down on the table. And then they all start laughing, and they also make fun of him. And
1: stop, stop, it, it, stop, stop it! Stop yeah. it! You're like, they're and... like they're like they're <laughs> like high school bullies.
0: It was so weird, though. Is there anything like is it is it some sort of thing? I don't know. Like you'd never really understand what's going on from the outside kind of thing because he thinks that this is an abusive abusive behavior but clearly it's happened before and they have a good relationship with each other and so then he's the butt of the joke i mean what is what is going on with that whole scene uh, did you have any thought did you think it was weird
1: it was a little weird i wonder if he's trying to be a bystander in a way that he isn't for hannah
0: ah uh, well, that's true Cause he's, he's
1: also on the way back from the camp too because yep. he went and visited the camp And so I was wondering, yeah, I was I'm wondering maybe that's just uh, maybe it's a thing where he's just trying to um, he's trying to make up for the fact that he he is uh, he's kind of a useless bystander. And and he or he could he could be more helpful and he's not being so.
0: Yeah. And it's also coming off of the fact that, I mean, he feels such shame. Yeah. Because he doesn't feel anything. He's completely numb when he's walking through. The concentration camp, and he feels shame at that. Yeah. So perhaps yes, yeah, perhaps compensating. Okay, well we're we're going to ask three more questions. Of course, with my questions, there are like five questions for each <laughs> question. So, we'll, Enlightenment Law, and they'll we'll talk about the end of the novel, and then we'll compare it to other Holocaust literature that we have done. So, Michael comments that Enlightenment Law the foundation of the American legal system as well as the German one, was, quote, based on the belief that a good order is intrinsic to the world. That's page 181. How does his experience with Hanna's trial influence Michael's view of history and of law? <laughs>
1: no, I'm reading the, the – well, I just wonder if he's misreading it though. They were based on the belief that a good order is intrinsic to the world and therefore the world can be brought into a good order. That sounds more like totalitarianism than it does the the Enlightenment philosophy upon which democracy was founded or, or modern democracy was founded. Yes. So would that be
0: Michael's error or Slink's because Slink is. A- I don't
1: know. That's the thing. It's like it doesn't. It doesn't seem to match up with the the ideals in the philosophies that you hear. Um, now, granted, any philosophy that's a political philosophy is about order in some way because it's setting up a system of government, and a system of power, just because um, the so is the major difference there that the um, like enlightenment re- relies on the concept of the tabula rasa, you know, the idea that the that human rights are inalienable they're innate and that we're all born as blank slates and, and you know and eventually you know we we established the governments ourselves as opposed to like and forgive me if i'm a little off on this listeners it's been a very long time since i read um, locke and rousseau and hobbes but from what i recall from college again 20 25 years ago Hobbes is all about how the state of nature is chaos and the and order needs to rise out of that chaos and it's a justification for something we talked about last episode, the divine right, the absolute monarchy. Machiavelli was all about power manipulation and keeping order, but for your you know, for your own personal gain. So all political philosophy is about power and order. It's the source of that power and order and who benefits from it that, that, that maintains it. Heck, religious doctrine is about order and power. Mm. The Catholic Church used religious doctrine to maintain power and order for centuries. So it's not germane to the Enlightenment. It's just another variation on a the theme but it just depends on who is benefiting and who establishes it that that's the different that differentiates the philosophies we bono oh mm-hmm. granted i'm making a very simplistic argument here yeah. that people who are much smarter than me can probably explain better and people who have read those works more recently the 1996 or 97 can also explain so So forgive me if I'm slightly off.
0: Yeah, I I wonder if he becomes cynical after the trial. Mm -hmm.
1: I think so, yeah.
0: 'Cause it says in the middle of this, for a long time I believed that there was progress in the history of law, a development towards greater beauty and truth, rationality and humanity despite terrible setbacks and retreats. Once it became clear to me that this belief was a chimera, I began playing with a different image of the course of legal history. In this one it still has a purpose, but the goal is finally it finally attains after countless disruptions, confusions and delusions is the beginning, its own original starting point, which once reached must be set off again, which seems like it, it gets nowhere. So I, I feel like, yeah, maybe he had that idealistic mm-hmm. belief that, yeah, we, we have these terrible setbacks, but we constantly push forward and, and we're looking for the good, good truth and beauty. But now it's like, uh, we, we never get we never get past a point, basically. Like we keep falling steps behind and then we push forward just to get back to where we started. So I, I feel like maybe it, it's it's turned his his thoughts on the law towards a negative perspective.
1: It's very, well, it's very easy. And, and I can totally understand mm-hmm. how somebody becomes cynical by that. You know, the, the to drop a boss song lyric on you, one step up and two steps back, you know, that idea oh. that, that you, for every progress you make, things do swing back and forth. You know, sometimes things are so reactionary that when you think that things are going very, very well, something comes along to, I don't know. It's either a reminder of how the cruel the world can be or a rebuke of what you had thought was doing well. And I guess it could be how you take it. And it's very easy. I think you can be, I think you can blend cynicism with hope because I think cynicism can be a defense mechanism because you don't want to feel hope because you feel embarrassed or stupid for feeling hope in that situation. And being cynical protects you from it. when, things get worse because you feel that hope is, we have been trained to feel that hope is somehow naive. Mm. Yeah. We've been trained that we've been trained to feel cynical because it's, it's our way of, because we, we do in our, in our culture, especially we, we equate cynicism with intelligence in a, in a certain sense. And we mm-hmm. equate hope with naivete. And therefore, when I can add item, 1506 to the atrocity that is donald trump's administration oh my god and i and i can say and i can be cynical enough to say i saw this coming i'm i'm protecting myself as opposed to being shocked and then being like and then and even though i have hope for the future but you know i guard it through cynicism because i don't want to be i don't want to i don't want to look stupid and so I see how he, he's he's kind of doing similar things where like he he's seeing this and it's kind of draining away and he's just going to get cynical because he doesn't want to get caught off guard in that way.
0: Is he partially to blame though for that perspective change because he didn't speak up for her mm-hmm. illiteracy? Because otherwise, yeah. I mean, the trial from another person's perspective, the trial I guess went as it should have.
1: I I think that I think he has a clear head on on what what his lack of telling the judge about the illiteracy has done, because it's not like it would have gotten her completely off, but it would have probably reduced her sentence because there's no way she could have written the report. Yeah. You know, like some of the pieces of evidence that mark her and that she's even saying, you know, I'm totally responsible for this and, you know, and and they'll throw the book at me because and she's going to take it. You know, they would turn around and be like, well, you know what? No, no, it's not, not so fast, but um, But yeah, he's uh, so his guilt for that is is definitely um, definitely driving things because he could have said something to the judge because he talked yeah. to the judge at one point or another.
0: Sure did. And they just prattle so. on about basically like his future or whatever. Mm-hmm. OK, well, I guess we'll go into what happens at the end of the novel uh, that she hangs herself. Mm-hmm. So I've got. About five different... I don't know. Several questions on this one. So why does she do what she does? Mm -hmm. Does her admission that the dead, quote, came every night whether I want them or not, end quote, imply that she suffered for her crimes... Uh, and then the final one is, is complicit. Well, this is.
1: Uh, well, I think we already talked about that.
0: Yeah, we did kind of. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the villagers, I feel like they're even guilty too. But yeah, so just those two. Uh, yeah. Do you feel like she suffered? And, and then why? Why does she kill herself at the end?
1: I think she does suffer. I think she's haunted. <gasps> there, there's a. I saw this. You're right.
0: You keep going. I saw something moving. Okay. Um, you keep talking. I'm going to go capture it. So if I don't respond, that's
1: Ghost fine. Scoob. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think she, I think she's haunted. It rem- actually, I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a more, this is a being more gentle version of an old Twilight Zone episode where an ex-Nazi visits a concentration camp and the ghosts in the concentration camp get a hold of him and put him on trial. Um, but here she's already been put on trial and she's in jail. And I think she is haunted by her past and, she spent so much time running from it well not running from it but she spent so much time controlling it and controlling who she was in the face of it so that she never had to actually sit and deal with who she was that now that she's in jail and she has no control she has very little control because she does control the situation in jail a little bit by being a model prisoner and and reading to people learning how to read but at the same time she she realizes that she finally has to have the time to f- come face to face because the they're they're coming to see her repeatedly and uh yeah so she's very very haunted
0: yeah i agree with the the control aspect that was yeah. actually kind of what i was thinking is that she got used to the situation on the inside And perhaps she realizes, oh, it's, you know, it's back to the way it was before. Mm. Um, Even though she can read, you know, her life has probably really changed. So I wondered how that was. But it seems like she transitions anyways at a certain point because she was a mentor, I guess we could say, to some of the other prisoners. They used to ask her questions and... Whatever her judgments were, I mean, she's like the head druid. Whatever her judgments were, they would listen to her, and then all of a sudden she stopped, I don't know, socializing with people. So I wonder what happened there. But I also think, yeah, I mean, her go-to guy was Michael, so I wonder how much of an impact or I wonder how much of a, well, I guess impact that made on her knowing that, you know, that relationship was different. Or it would be different.
1: Yeah. I was... Because I, I don't... On some level, I understand why she kills herself at the end of the novel. Because of just... Because of just everything. It became too much. And it, and the... the Was it the warden hints at the fact that she let herself go toward the end, too? That, that it's not like she turned around and... That that he... He mentioned that she'd been gaining weight. And... Yeah. Not that that's, like, letting yourself go. But, you know, like... the. the <laughs> The fact that she had been very controlling over the way she yeah. was and trying to maintain this person she was, and toward the very end she just let go, um, perhaps some sort of depression took over and, and maybe a realization of the, of, of how she might not be able to face the world. Or You're right, maybe the dynamic of her relationship with Michael would have changed because if you think about it, he would have been taking care of her. And maybe she didn't want that. But I don't think he's the reason she killed herself. Mm. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if that wasn't a factor.
0: Yeah. And I guess it's true. Well, a- as far as I've heard in different things, that everyone seems really fine and-, and good to go the day before they kill themselves. And that certainly was true of like the phone call and everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I was kind of suspicious once we're getting into details of all the stuff he was buying and getting groceries. I was like, is something going
1: to happen right now <laughs> yeah it's 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 a very soap opera moment of like the minute everything seems really good that's when the other shoe drops i do you think it could have ended another way i mean is it really like does this this ha- the way this novel has to end or would it have been acceptable to you that she um she gets released from prison and they live happily ever after
0: Oh, I, I don't mean, think that. I don't think that's reasonable. But I think if she had been released, and I, I think they would have been estranged. I think he would have still been in the same sort of place that like still messed up, not in a good place with his daughter. But I don't think I can't really see them being in a relationship after that. Yes, uh, I almost imagined her getting sorry. To cut no, off. Ahead, sorry. I almost imagined her getting released and maybe staying at the apartment a couple of days, but disappearing again.
1: Yeah, although that might be unsatisfying in the sense that there's no closure, and at yeah. least with the end of this novel, there's closure, and we get that. Really, I really like the scene with the Jewish woman, um, in New York, because yeah. I think it's a really good read on him, and it's a really good read on her, and that we wouldn't have gotten that if Hannah hadn't killed herself. Because it's not like she kills herself; she kills herself at the end, but she's not like she kills herself on the last page there's a there's a prolonged no. falling action and resolution yep. and uh and I, I think i think that's why I, I like that she killed herself i think that's what i think <laughs> there's makes the book you know it's that mean that's it's good that she did it in the context of the story because i think it, it works
0: yeah and in regards to the the dead the, this is something I I read it a couple times, Mm -hmm. and I I feel like I'm still working through it. Uh, This came after him. This is page 198, asking, you know, don't you ever think about the things that were discussed at the trial? Um, did you ever think about them when we were together when I was reading to you? And she says, does that bother you very much? But she didn't wait for an answer. I always had the feeling that no one understood me anyway, that no one knew who I was and what made me do this or that. And you know, when no one understands you, then no one can call you to account. Not even the court could call me to account, but the dead can, they understand they don't even have to have been there, but if they were, they understand even better. Here in prison, they were with me a lot. They came every night, whether I wanted them or not. Before the trial, I could still chase them away when they wanted to come. So it's interesting that, yeah, the dead, the dead are the ones that understand her, whereas no one else can, And which is, I guess true of Michael, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess she proves that particular point that he, or she answers the question that he makes. But it's interesting to think, though, that do you, Holocaust victims or survivors can they do they understand do they empathize? And I mean, not everyone is like Cory Boom, who shook the hand of a uh, Nazi officer. I think mm-hmm. I don't know if it was someone at her camp or not, because that comes from that's like christ right there inside of someone but yeah I. what do you think do you think that's true that this you know all those people in the church the 60 people that she sent out of the camp to Auschwitz to die they understood what she was going through and that's why they visit her
1: or they i see i always thought they visit her they come to haunt her because they they need her because she owes the restitution
0: well,
1: and that they're haunt, they are literally haunting her and she yeah. can frame it in that they understand. But, okay. um, but maybe perhaps they understand, but maybe it's not what she was going through, but it was the evil she was. Okay. And, and she is, I that's see. what she is. I was, I was saying about control earlier. I think she's hidden yeah. that away for a very long time.
0: So maybe understand is a no, I know or recognize yeah, you rather than I empathize Exactly.
1: With you. Know or recognize. Okay. And, and it's there it's she is you know she was put on trial and uh, she was put on trial but now that she has to really face what she did in the past she is that's the trial that's the real trial and i think that's Mm -hmm. i think that's her point
0: yeah so perhaps they may have pushed her to kill herself too. it's
1: very possible you know it's it's um you know despite the fact that she inflicted things on her on these people and that they were her victims she clearly has suffered she clearly is dealing with trauma as well yeah the guilt that she is feeling is you know there there's a there's traumatic there's something traumatic and and perhaps it you know it's just pushing her to the point where she can't that's her escape
0: Mm -hmm. oh boy okay so how does this novel leave you feeling and thinking is it hopeful or ultimately despairing and if well we have so we've read other holocaust yes. literature how does the reader compare to other things that we've read
1: um i'll the last one first because i it's a really good entry because this is one of the few times where i get that i i mean it's it's i'm sure there are other books like this but it's one of the only books I've read where we see it from this side, because most of the ones that are about survivors and about people coming to terms with what happened years earlier are from the from the point of view of the victims. So, like I mentioned, night, I mentioned mouse, and there are other there are other works that are, you know, Schindler's List uh, that are to- was told from the from the side of the people who were who were not only witnessed to, but were the victims of the atrocities Um, or in the case of something like uh, the book thief were mm. allies, right? So we don't get, and, and we also, it's also a unique perspective in that we're getting a reconciliation, a ge- generational conflict, you know, 20 years after the Holocaust or whatever it is. And we're still, this is what our country is dealing with. And we are still seeing these people and, and we have to, we have to see how we can deal with them in our conversation. So I think that I think that's a really good piece of, of literature. It made me thinking a lot about a lot about that and, and wondering like what Germany as a whole went through. It mm-hmm. also has me thinking about what we're going through at this point with re examining a lot of our own past and how we yeah. have treated groups of people. I don't know if it's It didn't leave me despaired or depressed. I was sad. But at the same time, I think contemplative is probably one of the best ways to describe it. I didn't feel hopeful after this, but I wasn't like upset. I was sad at what happened to him. I was ultimately sad about what happened to the people in the novel, even her to a certain extent. She's a very sad character. But at the same time, it was like I was just thinking a lot. And thinking and maybe think about other things and thinking about things in our own context right now. So,
0: yeah, I I think conflicted is, is the feeling that I would have mm-hmm. just because it's such tough subject matter and you have someone that you want to paint as a villain right away. But. You know, there were times I, I was tending towards sympathy towards her. Or I felt her. I was trying to better understand her. And so then I'm like, oh, gosh, does that make me a terrible person? Well, I guess we talked about this before, right? When when I felt the same way for, gosh, Rem? No, his name is not Remy. I can't remember his name. The prisoner in the Green Mile that Devereaux? Yeah, Devereaux. Devereux? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, that sort of thing. But I guess it's just maybe that's good maybe we we that is a challenge that we should have that even though there are terrible people out there you know to seek to understand them mm-hmm. but also check ourselves that maybe there should be a discomfort you know if we're getting too close or something like that so Conflicted is what I would say on yeah. that. I think there's something in between hope and despair, I think, with that. Uh, I don't know if either of the characters really are redeemed at the end because his relationships are so broken, so it's not like there's a happy ending for that. And then, you know, with Hana, her life is just, like, cut off right away, yeah. And, and, yeah, she she suffered. So it's it's almost between that. Uh, and I will agree with you that it, it did have me contemplating more like that German aspect, like that whole thing about parents not living up to expect their children's expectations mm-hmm. and collective guilt. That's something that I didn't really consider about Germany, you know, post-World War II, so that was good. And then, yeah, with Holocaust literature, I feel like the only thing I've read, read, was, even though I have both volumes of Mouse, I've yet to do it. Mm. I don't know what I'm waiting for. But I guess it would have just been... Uh, night I feel possibly got the diary
1: of, of Anne else. Frank
0: oh yep there's that okay. that's
1: another big middle like that's yeah. that's like eighth grade
0: you're right yep yeah. uh do you know what here's a controversial thing to mm. say she annoyed me at, at times in that
1: I don't know <laughs> see I have a copy in my classroom because it was just part of a I've inherited various yeah. people's classroom libraries over the years or bits of them and I I uh, I don't know if I've ever actually read the whole thing. I remember reading okay. the play version in middle school or junior high, but Diary of Anne Frank, night, the book thief I mentioned. Yep. Mouse. I I read Mouse once. I I would I'm due for a reread.
0: Yeah. Any I mean, she's a teenager, so I guess that is yeah. just part of the course. I mean, it makes her realistic. But yeah, I feel like I've watched. Oh my gosh, is there another one? I feel like I've watched more than I have mm-hmm. um, read. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it. I I would agree with you. I think just seeing it from the other perspective is what makes it really interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's all we have. Yeah.
1: Well, I think we got one more question.
0: Oh, we do have one more question. Tom, do you feel like the reader is required reading?
1: I think I think so. If you're interested. In in this sort of line of things, I, I think it might turn a lot of people off. In terms of, I think the sex might turn a lot of people off. No pun intended, but I I, I would
0: recommend it. I think I think it depends on the class. Mm-hmm. I, I think it would be paired well with other Holocaust literature. I, I mean, if you did Night and The Reader, uh, just because you could see victim and perpetrator. Yeah, basically. Or Western Civ potentially mm-hmm. or even a philosophy class.
1: This might be a good one for a philosophy class.
0: Yeah, to get into that. Contemplating I mean, morality that and, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and I mean I know there's that direct discussion about philosophy with the father, but I think there's certainly more yeah. to talk no, about.
1: Yeah, that's there. this would be so. very good for an ethics class too.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right, we do have some a little bit of feedback. So um, just a little peek behind the curtain. Uh, we're recording this episode and the next episode in succession to give ourselves most of October off. We do have, so you might be a little thin on feedback next month. And we did get one comment on our Macbeth episode from Robert Ward that I'm actually going to save for next episode. We have something to put in there. Uh, so yeah. feel free to email us in about this. I know we brought up quite a few things that are worth some extended discussion, and we are welcome to those. Um, But Robert did comment on us um, and Mm -hmm. on our, our, on the, let me start that over. Uh, Robert did comment on our Facebook page, um, and he did just want to let us know that Netflix (gasps) is dropping a new version of Rebecca on October 21st. He also yes. said that regarding Shakespeare, when tackling Shakespeare, one of the best things you can do is listen to the plays produced by uh, Archangel Shakespeare. They did an absolutely phenomenal job producing every existing play with some amazing actors, uh, some actors who would go on to be incredibly famous. So that's worth a look, because like I said, I had the old Vic production, which I just got like secondhand through somebody. And my my go to tends to be the Folger Shakespeare library. Mm. Um, so any yeah. any comment on that?
0: Uh, just I'm super excited. I I think I can't remember what happened, but I happened upon the trailer for Rebecca mm. got Super Pub because I actually thought it was gonna come into theaters. And then we know with that that's yeah. going to be delayed a year or whatever. So when I saw his Netflix, I was like, yes. So I, yeah, uh, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas mm-hmm. as Mrs. Danvers. You have Army Hammer as Maxim and then Lily James as Mrs. DeWinter. Now, my only disagreement, off the, I love Lily James, but I just feel like she's too beautiful <laughs> to be <laughs> because I feel like Mrs. the second Mrs. DeWinter wasn't as yeah. beautiful. I mean, there is that difference between the first and the second of of her, uh, not necess- I guess kind of being close to Jane Eyre, but anyways, I'm I'm just super excited mm-hmm. to, to see what this adaptation holds in store, and um, yeah, Whew! so that'll that'll be fun to to watch. Yeah. For sure.
1: Well, and I think was it? Um, I don't remember who played Joan Fontaine played one of the two women. I think she played Rebecca or Mrs. De Winter in the um, in the original one, and it was and and she was one of those actresses that uh, really really famous. Hollywood screen, you know, and I want to say, kind of, and, and I'm I'm vamping here because I'm looking at...
0: Oh, I wonder. I was like... I'm babbling it, because I'm looking it It's only 20 minutes. On, is he going to make
1: it? I'm looking it up on IMDb and the yeah, IMDb. she played... Joan Fontaine played Mrs. DeWinter. Lawrence Olivia mm-hmm. played Maxim um, and Judith Anderson played Mrs. Danvers in the 1940, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, Alfred Hitchcock version. So,
0: Ooh, and uh nice.
1: You know, Reginald Denny, who would go on to play King Boris in the Batman TV show. <gasps> um, wow. Played uh, Frank Crawley. So, mm. anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I should let us all know that we are doing another book next episode.
0: <laughs> I guess so, Tom. And, what are we well, doing?
1: Well, you mentioned it earlier. <gasps> uh, we both read it. And we both did the, it is a prequel to a book that we did. <laughs> uh, it is probably, as far as us being current, the most current book. You know, like, oh, you know, shortest time yeah. between publication and, and, uh, and, and podcasting. And that is The yeah. Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes by Suzanne Collins, mm-hmm. which is the prequel novel that recently came out of uh, To the Hunger Games.
0: Mm-hmm. Hunger
1: Games Hunger Zero. Game Zero, as we're referring to it. So, so, yeah, so we'll be we're recording that soon, and so you get this episode's going to drop in October. Then you get to go watch Rebecca, and yep. then you can, and then October thirtieth, Baby Yoda comes back, and you can take some, oh, you can take a break dear. in November from all your Baby Yoda ink, mm. and and listen to us talk about uh, Coriolanus Snow and his yep. rise.
0: Indeed. And I guess so. Last episode, we broke a rule. We never promised that we had a, a double author. Mm-hmm. And so now we're in the double series. Yeah. We we picked another in the series.
1: Yeah. So, uh, hey, these things happen. So.
0: They do <laughs> but happen. There, yeah. But
1: like we have both said, there are books by – there are multiple books by one author that we would certainly – Oh, yeah, Um, for sure. That we would certainly talk about. Uh, I think of John Steinbeck as as one of my primary. Stephen King is probably another example of of, I'd bring another Stephen King book on and stuff. So, yeah. All right. Well, that is about it for us. Um, As always, you know, we love the feedback. Even if it's going to be delayed two months, we would love to hear from you guys. (laughs) Thanks for listening and take care.
0: And the next time someone asks to bathe you, say, no way, Jose. (laughs) (laughs) No way, Jose. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash requiredreadingwithtomandstella.
1: If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes.
0: We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review in iTunes?
1: If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to 2TrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out.
0: Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.